Hi, and welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Evening Community Podcast. We're a church community in Sydney, Australia, who are passionate about pursuing God together and seeing the world changed by His love. We hope this message challenges and inspires you. For more talks and other resources, please visit our website, www.northridge.org.au. Friends, welcome back to another view of our living room. We're just trying to keep things really interesting for you uh, during lockdown church. And welcome to week two of a series uh, that we are doing, looking through the Bible at the theme of work and rest. Now, the big idea, uh, which I talked about last week, the big idea of this series is that for God, there's not this divide between the secular and the sacred. It's not like what we do on a Sunday really matters to God and what we do for our work or our rest or our social lives doesn't. The idea is that when we come into relationship with Jesus, when we encounter the risen Jesus, it changes everything. It affects every part of our lives. And that absolutely includes our work and our rest. Uh, And last week, we kicked off this series basically by looking at God's vision for work on its best day. We had a read of Genesis 1, um, day six of creation. And we learned that God, um, at the moment of creation, God gave humanity a blessing. And there are two parts to this blessing, which are really important. The first one is, he said to the humans, be fruitful and increase in number, which doesn't just mean have lots of kids. If you zoom out, what he's really saying is go and make a society. And the second part uh, is God says to humanity, fill the earth and subdue it which means take the raw materials and the things that I've put under your feet, make new technology, go out to the ends of the earth uh, and build a civilization. And so when we put it all together, the blessing that we have as humanity is to partner with God in continuing his creative work. You know, he could have created uh, all of humanity, all of civilization, all technology with a click of his fingers and yet He chose to uh, include us really from the beginning and to partner with us in continuing this creative work, which is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, We also explored a lot of the different ways that we can unearth our calling. We can ask God, what is it that you want me to do? What's the little piece um, of your creative work that you have for me? Uh, And how we can live out God's vision. Uh, for the work of our hands, uh, for the work that we give our lives to. But at the end of last week, we finished with a rather significant caveat. And that's to recognize that to have work that is fulfilling and meaningful and wonderful is such a first world privilege. That so many people around the world live hand to mouth, that having work um, and some kind of stable income in any form is an absolute privilege. The other thing is that um, no matter what you do, whatever you call your vocation, uh, be that paid work, be that study, parenting, grandparenting, uh, whether you're creative, whatever it is, regardless of how good the gig, it's never going to totally fulfill us, is it? No, no matter how satisfying our job, it never, um, we're never going to reach that place where it's everything that we had hoped and dreamed And so tonight, we're going to explore what went wrong. 
Why is it uh, that work isn't all uh, that it's meant to be all the time? Um, and what happened at the fall of humanity? So why don't we get into it? All right, if you have a Bible handy, why don't you open it up, switch it on, uh, however you want to do it. We're going to read from uh, Genesis 3, and we're actually going to do the whole chapter. So starting from verse 1, going the whole way through. Let me pull it up. And I'm going to read from the NIV translation. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your, cha- uh, your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, and dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Well done for sticking with me. I realize that was a rather lengthy passage, but I love it when we get together and we read scripture together. I think it's really special. So what has just happened in this rather lengthy passage? Well, it starts out with an interaction between the woman and this snake. And isn't it interesting what the snake says? He First of all, he says, did God really say you shouldn't do that? Does that sound familiar? And secondly, uh, the snake says, if you ate from the tree, then you could be like God. And the absolute kicker here, the tragedy is that she was already like God. We learn from Genesis 1 that humanity was created in God's image. Isn't that tragic? And so in typical human fashion, uh, Adam and Eve, they uh, do the one thing that they weren't allowed to do and they ate from the tree. And there's so much we could say about this moment. There's so much theology and interpretation that we could bring into this. But for our purposes, I want to keep it really simple that when humanity, uh, when these first people ate from the tree, they were saying, we want to make the rules. We want to be the ones in charge. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents them saying that uh, we want to be the ones who decides what's best for us, not God. And isn't it fascinating that the moment they, uh, they eat from this fruit, they feel shame. For the first time in human history, these humans experience shame. Now, Brene Brown uh, defines shame as the fear of disconnection. And for me, that kind of brings this moment alive. It helps me understand that what those first people must have realized is that uh, they had broken their connection with God. And there's this awful moment um, between when they, uh, when they ate from the tree and when God finds them where I, can't, I just can't imagine how they must have been feeling as they were sowing those fig leaves together. So God shows up uh, and it's almost humorous, the interaction, isn't it? God says to Adam, what have you done? Adam says, it was my wife. Eve, what have you done? Eve says, it was the snake. Uh, and so God pronounces a curse on all three of them. To the serpent, uh, it's really interesting because in verse 15 here, um, have a quick look at it. In verse 15, uh, in the curse to the snake, we actually get what people consider to be the first prophecy in the Bible about the coming of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Genesis chapter 3, the fall of humanity is literally minutes old, and yet here is God um, promising uh, a savior to humanity. That's a bit of an aside. Let's move on. Uh, to the woman, he pronounces pain in childbirth. And to the man, he says, cursed is the ground that you will work. And God throws them out of the garden, which might I add is uh, where they were supposed to be heading anyway, according to the blessing. Um, and you know what? I think that uh, that was actually an act of mercy, that God was actually banishing them from the garden, not out of spite, but for their own safety. But, and I do just want to pull this out, um, before God kicks the humans out of the garden, he makes clothes for them. That might seem like a really random thing to do, but of all of the humans who have ever done anything wrong ever, 
it feels like God probably had a right to be pretty upset with them. Maybe let them wallow in their shame for a little while. But you know what God does? He actually chooses to give them, in their darkest moment, uh, he chooses to give them dignity instead of shame. Isn't that an extraordinary, extraordinary picture of God's grace? And if you're listening to this tonight or, or wherever you are, and you are struggling with shame, if you are struggling with the fear of disconnection from God because of something you've done or something someone else has done or said, then I want to offer you this picture that for these first people in their darkest moment, God chooses to give them dignity. Now, that's uh, a little tangential. So let's just bring it back um, to this theme of work and rest. And what I want to do is I really just want to examine the curse that God puts onto the humans. I've always found it a little bit random. I never really understood where that came from. But reading it in the context of the blessing in Genesis 1, that we've already talked about this evening, it makes a little bit more sense. It's not random. There are two parts to the blessing, right? The first is be fruitful and increase in number. And so the consequence of the curse is pain in childbirth. The second uh, part of the blessing is um, fill the earth and subdue it. And so the ground is cursed. I think it's really what, what I take away from this is that God is not actually taking away the blessing that he's given to humanity to go and partner with him creatively, creating technology, creating civilization, creating society. God hasn't taken that blessing away, but he's frustrated the blessing, hasn't he? You know, it doesn't, the, the curse is not work. The curse is on the ground that the humans will work. And when we, when we take that perspective, it really changes it, doesn't it? And to tie it all together, um, as far as this series go, I think that this helps us understand why work, why our vocation is often not all that we would hope it to be. Why it's not all that God would hope it to be. It's because our desire for our own glory, our um, decision in our hearts that we actually know what's best for us that our sin always gets in the way. Whether that's ours or the sin of someone else, I think that um, work and vocation is less than God's best because of sin in the world. Now, I realize at this point that everything I've said so far, uh, when we apply it to our own lives, is still a little bit conceptual. So I want to take a moment to make this a little bit more real for us. And I want to uh, read us a curious little passage that we find um, in Genesis chapter 11, which is kind of the next stop in the Bible uh, when we look at this theme of work and rest. And it's the story about the Tower of Babel. So Genesis 11, 1. Now the whole world had one language and one common speech. As people moved eastwards, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower where the, that the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, 
that nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. This is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So what has just happened in this passage? Well, we have the humans moving east from Eden, which is good, stepping into the blessing. uh, And they've developed new technology, bricks and mortar. Things seem to be going to plan. But for whatever reason, instead of continuing in the blessing of God, they decided to stop and basically stick it to him by building a giant tower. And uh, it's just the Genesis 3, 4 narrative all over again, isn't it? You can almost hear the enemy whispering in their ears saying, did God really say fill the earth and subdue it? Build a tower. You could be just like him. And God comes down. He sees what they're doing. And once again, in his mercy, he scatters them, returns them back to the blessing. And for me, I think this passage, um, even though we're not trying to build a tower to the heavens in a literal sense, maybe some of us are. Um, but I think it gives us a little bit of insight into the way that the fall has corrupted work. Because even though it might be easy to read this story and with the benefit of hindsight say, well, of course, we're not going to be like that. I think to at least some extent, I think we fall into a lot of the same traps as the uh, ancient Babylonians in this story. So I just want to give us a few examples of what I think this looks like in uh, 21st century Western society. The first one is that I think we attempt to build Babel uh, when we take on an attitude of hurry. Now, this word hurry could mean almost anything. So I want to give you a great definition from Dallas Willard. He says, hurry is an attitude. It's not necessarily the same thing as speed. It's trusting in your speed. It comes from pride and trying to do too much. Now, nothing is wrong with a little bit of pressure or speed in our work. You know, honestly, I thrive on pressure. Um, I think I do my best work under pressure. Um, But I think the attitude of hurry is a little bit different. It's kind of saying, okay, just one more brick, one more brick, one more brick. And so I want to ask you, are you addicted to hurry? Is hurry the story of your life? For another example, I think we build Babel sometimes on our expectations. You know, I find it really fascinating the way that um, Instagram and social media have kind of popularized this idea of quitting the nine to five, quitting the rat race and starting your own thing, Um, going traveling, being a travel blogger, um, becoming a digital nomad. Uh, It's all very appealing when you see it on Instagram, isn't it? And now there's nothing wrong with being an entrepreneur. Um, But I think for some of us, this idea almost becomes our hope. You know, it's this idea almost like the Babylonians of saying, how incredible is it going to be when we build that tower? Imagine the view from the top. There's this saying, and I can't figure out exactly who said it first, but um, this saying says, happiness is reality minus expectations. And I wonder when when we put our expectations on anything other than God, whether we're setting ourselves up for failure. 
How do your expectations stack up to reality? Another way that I think we, um, we build Babel is when work becomes our identity. Now, to be clear, I think work is a part of our identity. Uh, our vocation is a part of our identity. A few months ago, um, I used this analogy of a Jenga tower for our identity. And the things that are really foundational to who we are are at the bottom. We pull one piece out, the whole tower comes down. The things that are part of who we are, but not so important, are at the top. You know, you can take them away and it's okay. I think when work is at the bottom of the tower, when our work is one of the foundational pieces of who we are as a person, I think we're on dangerous ground. Because like we talked about last week, our vocation can change and is likely to change during our lives. There's this thing called retirement. A lot of people really struggle to make that transition. I'm not saying that work should be right up the top of the Jenga tower either. I think it probably fits somewhere in the middle, but um, I want to ask you, where does work uh, fit in the Jenga tower of your identity? I think we build Babel uh, when we become addicted to our work, workaholism. Isn't it interesting how whenever technology is advertised to us, it's always under the premise that um, this piece of technology will make our lives easier and better um, so that we can stay focused on the things that really matter. Whereas that's never the reality, is it? Technology tends to keep us at work longer and keep us distracted from the things that are actually uh, in front of our face. It makes it much harder for us to be present for the things that really matter. Now, I'm not saying that technology is bad in and of itself. Uh, in fact, building technology, recombining the raw materials of creation is part of the blessing. It's part of the plan. But the question I have is, do you serve your technology or does it serve you? Who's the master and who's the slave in that relationship? And for one final example, I want to suggest that we build Babel when we give in to the trap of comparison. You know, when, when they start building this tower, they're really trying to compete with God, aren't they? And I believe that um, the problem of comparison, which steals our joy, it has its root in the lie of scarcity. That there's not enough. Whatever it is that you're looking for, whether that's recognition or resources or happiness, it's looking at someone else and saying, I want what they have. It's what happens when we stop fulfilling our command to fill the whole earth and decide to just settle in one place. And so I want to ask you, do you believe that you really need what someone else has? The thing that underpins all of these examples is one simple question that goes right back to that narrative at the fall Whose kingdom are you building? The kingdom of you, the kingdom of me, or the kingdom of God? And so what do we do? What do we do in response to all of the brokenness uh, that sin and the curse brings uh, to our work? Now, annoyingly, I'm not going to answer that question tonight. Um, I think sometimes we're so quick to jump to answers uh, when we speak from the front in church, I actually want us to sit with this for a little bit. Now, I'd be pleased to know we are going to address this next week uh, and the week after. Um, but I want you to honestly examine yourself 
And I wonder whether one of those things that I said uh, resonates with you. If I'm really honest, I think they all resonate a little bit with me. Now, before we wrap up for tonight, I do just briefly want to address a small theological hole. Uh, one of the questions that came to mind for me as I read through both of these passages that we've looked at tonight. Uh, and the question that I have from both of these stories is why was the curse necessary? And why did God need to scatter the Babylonians? Is he really that insecure? Is he uh, just trying to stick it to people who try and compete with him? What's the deal? Um, I want to read this quote from John Mark Comer that comes out of the book Garden City uh, that this series is based on. He says, I think that the curse is a blessing in camouflage. It's God's love in disguise, his mercy incognito, because the curse drives us to God. In the same way, when God scatters the Babylonians, he releases them back into the blessing. You know, regardless of how good we are, how skilled, how talented, how amazing, how self-sufficient we think we are, all of us, by design, need God. It's who we are. Um, I think this is illustrated beautifully in a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. It's one of my all-time favorites. Um, and in this book, the, the book is, it begins in hell, which is really fascinating because for C.S. Lewis, hell is this beautiful, quiet, suburban neighborhood where everyone gets what they want all the time. Chew on that for a moment. What if the failure to find fulfillment in our work is actually supposed to leave us with a longing for God? What if that frustration is supposed to drive us back into connection with our Creator? Now, I'm not trying to offer an explanation for all suffering here. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I do wonder whether in these moments when work, when vocation is way harder than it's supposed to be, when we're struggling to unearth our calling, when we're just struggling to find fulfillment in what we do, whether that's our opportunity to turn to God and pray for something better, to run back into his arms uh, and to remember to hope for the glorious future that we have in front of us when Jesus returns. Well done. Uh, we've made it. We're almost at the end. Um, we're going to wrap up shortly, but I, do, I don't want to leave us uh, in a place of despair tonight. I want to let us know that um, I actually believe God has given us a secret weapon in all of this. And believe it or not, the secret weapon that we have uh, is rest. Now, rest uh, is so far from just being the absence of, of work or just being relaxation. I actually believe, and we're going to talk about this next week, but I believe that rest is a subversive act of rebellion against the kingdom of darkness. Big call. Let's see if we can back that one up next week. And what's more, I think that rest is a prophetic act that signals uh, to the glorious future that we have in front of us uh, in eternity. Now, there's some really big claims. I'm not speaking to you next week, so I don't have to back them up. 
um, our good friend Dan Sheed, who leads Central Vineyard uh, over in uh, New Zealand. Uh, he's going to be bringing next week's message, which is going to be really exciting. Um, but I do also just want to point out, and I guess signaling towards our final week, that uh, this whole theme uh, of work and rest, it ultimately finds its, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus, that he is our perfect guide and our perfect model of work and rest. So we have that to, to, uh, to look forward to in week four as well. But in the meanwhile, why don't I pray and then we'll finish. Oh, well, Lord Jesus, um, thank you uh, for the gift of your word that uh, we can understand, that we can learn so much um, from digging into these beautiful stories of old. Um, and Lord, for anyone right now who, um, as we said before, is just struggling with shame and the fear of disconnection from you, Lord, I want to ask um, that you would make your grace real and you would make your love real to us. Even, even in this moment right now, would you come and meet with us, God? Lord, and for any of us who are struggling in our work because of our own brokenness, Lord, show us a better way. Lord, we're here praying now. Lord, just reveal um, our struggles to us, reveal our shortcomings. And I want to pray that you would help us to change, um, that we could step into um, the blessing that you have for us, Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this word. And we just ask that it would take root in our hearts uh, and that we would be able to grow and step into the wonderful uh, blessing that you have for us. Amen.